0: Hello, and welcome to the Interesting Bits podcast with me, Justin Pollard. The Interesting Bits is an attempt to delve into the stories of some of history's underdogs, the forgotten majority who never became historical celebrities, but played their part nonetheless. The Interesting Bits is here to tell the stories of the mad, bad, stupid, wonderful, odd and improbable things that happened to our ancestors. They have no greater meaning, no direction, no overarching theme beyond being, I hope, worthy of note perhaps even memorable, and reminding us that the past was as daft as the present, and the people of the past were as daft as us. That's what actually links us. and welcome to episode three of The Interesting Bits. This time we'll be telling the tragic story of Lady Jane Grey's little sister and Alice Wealdon's unlikely part in the poison dart plot. But first, a tale of witchcraft and sorcery from the court of Henry VI. Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, and his second wife Eleanor had every reason to want to know what the future held. He was the brother of Henry V and with Henry dead and his sickly son Henry VI on the throne, Humphrey was only a step away from the crown itself. Discovering the future through horoscopes was not unknown or even illegal at this time, and Humphrey actively recruited and protected fortune-tellers. But being so close to the king made fortune-telling a dangerous game. Whilst Humphrey might be untouchable, his enemies knew that his second wife was not, and so began the biggest witch scandal in English history. In 1441 Eleanor was accused of witchcraft, in which she was said to have been aided by Marjorie Geordemaine, the Witch of Eye, and various members of her household. It was claimed that Eleanor had won Humphrey, who had divorced his first wife to marry her, by such medicines and drinks as the said witch made. There were also whispers that she was attempting to kill the King, and in a mood of apprehension following the stunning successes of Joan of Arc, the charge seemed plausible. According to a continuator of the chronicle known as The Brute, the charges against Eleanor came after a period of very bad weather has endangered Henry VI's life on a trip to London on the 15th of July 1441. He says, And so it was spoken amongst the people, that there were some wicked fiends and spirits arreared out of hell by conjuration, for to annoy the people in the realm and to put them to trouble, dissent and unrest. And then it was known that certain clerks and women that are called witches had made their operations and their craft to destroy men and women, or whom they list unto death by their false craft and working, whereof Dame Eleanor Cobham, which was the Duchess of Gloucester, was named principally in these acts and false deeds for the destroying of the King, whom God save and help. Following the charge of treason, two clerics were arrested, Roger Bolingbroke and Thomas Southwell the charge being that they attempted to consume the king's person by way of necromancy southwell was said to have said a mass in a forbidden place the lodge of harnsey park upon certain instruments with which bolingbroke used his said craft of necromancy against the faith and good belief the plot if it existed was known about before the king's visit to london and bolingbroke and southwell were probably first tried by an ecclesiastical inquisition on sunday twenty third of july Bolingbroke was displayed on a high stage at St Paul's Cross in the midst of his magical paraphernalia, which included images of silver, of wax and of other metals and swords and many other diverse instruments of this false craft of necromancy and the devil's power. After a sermon, he was forced to do penance, abjuring the items he had used in the presence of the Archbishop of Canterbury and numerous nobles. Only after this was he examined by the King's Council. At the king's council, probably following torture, Bolingbroke admitted to using necromancy at the instigation of Eleanor, who had asked to know what should fall of her and of what estate she should come. Although this was not strictly illegal, for a woman who would be queen if the frail Henry VI died, it was foolish, if not treasonable. She was also suspected as having acted on this divination and attempted by witchcraft to shorten the king's life eleanor was summoned to appear before the archbishop and other clerics to answer charges of necromancy of witchcraft or sorcery of heresy and of treason before she could be apprehended however she had taken sanctuary in westminster abbey she did answer the summon and appeared in st stephen's chapel at the palace of westminster on tuesday the twenty fifth of july where she pleaded not guilty to the twenty-eight charges levelled against her after which she was allowed to return to sanctuary until the following day The next day she appeared again in court and this time Bolingbroke was brought before her as a witness and he vouched all these points upon her that was shown the day above said to her, whereof she knowledged some points at that time, the number of five. The trial was adjourned until the autumn and Eleanor was ordered to be sent to Leeds Castle for safekeeping. She was unwilling to leave sanctuary, however, and feigned illness. Later she also attempted to escape by river but was apprehended. Eleanor's ecclesiastical trial was resumed on the 19th of October when Bolingbroke, Southwell and Marjorie Geordemain all testified against her. It was claimed that she used Bolingbroke to contact demons and other malign spirits and, with Southwell, used horoscopes to predict the death of the king. Further, it was said that the information so gained was passed amongst some of the nobles so that they would withdraw their support for Henry and thus, in his sorrow, he would die quicker. Accounts vary as to whether she refuted all the charges, but she seems to have put herself at the mercy of the court and the following day abjured the articles Bolingbroke had used and was required to appear before the Archbishop of Canterbury on Thursday the 9th November to receive her penance. Marjorie Geordemain was burned to death in Smithfield the same day. Southwell, who was due to be arraigned then, also escaped by dying at the Tower during the previous night, thus fulfilling his own prophecy that he would die in bed and not at the hands of justice. On the ninth of November, Eleanor was sentenced to do penance, walking barefoot with tapers to several London churches. She was also formally divorced from her husband, as she had only gained his affections by sorcery, and is therefore referred to as Eleanor, lately called Duchess of Gloucester. On the day of Eleanor's final penance, November the eighteenth, Bolingbroke, Sir John Hom, and William Woodham, Esquire, were condemned at the Guildhall for treason, and sentenced to death. Holm and Woodham were pardoned by the King, but Bolingbroke was found guilty and the sentence was carried out. He was taken from the Tower of London unto Tyburn, and there he was hanged and let down half alive, and his bowels taken out and burned and his head smitten off and set on London Bridge, and his body quartered and sent to certain towns of England, that is to say Oxford, Cambridge, York and Hereford. The main chronicle of the event ends as it began, with a great storm for which Eleanor was given the credit. She was kept a ward in Westminster until the 24th of January, 1442, then moved to confinements progressively further from London, finally ending her days on the Isle of Man. Catherine Grey The story of the rise and tragic fall of Lady Jane Grey and her few days as putative Queen of England is hardly a secret, but the story of how her younger sister nearly became Queen is far less well known, although it might have changed the history of both England and Scotland at a stroke. Catherine Grey had survived the plot to put her sister on the throne surprisingly well. The same day that Jane was married to Guildford Dudley as part of Suffolk's plan to put her on the throne and him in the driving seat, Catherine was married, or perhaps just betrothed, to the son of his ally William Herbert, 1st Earl of Pembroke. But following the accession of Mary and the execution of Guildford, Jane and her father, Catherine's attachment was simply dissolved, and she was welcomed, at least cautiously, into Mary's court. When Elizabeth came to the throne in 1558, her prospects looked better still. What had always created a maelstrom of interest around the Grey Girls was their royal blood, Catherine was a granddaughter of Mary Tudor, younger sister of Henry VIII, and hence great-granddaughter of Henry VII, giving her a good claim to the throne. What is more, after the death of her mother in November 1559, she became heir presumptive to the throne under the terms of Henry VIII's will, the next in line, should Elizabeth have no children. If it was a time of opportunity, it was also a dangerous time. Elizabeth might well be entertaining the idea of Catherine as her Tudor heir, keeping her dynasty on the throne but the grey girl was also a potential threat. Foreign princes began circling Catherine and marriages into the royal house of Spain and Scotland were suggested. Catherine would have to tread carefully and most importantly of all keep on the very best terms with Elizabeth both to ensure her survival and her potential accession. Yet this is exactly what she failed to do. What drove a wedge between Catherine and Elizabeth was Edward Seymour Earl of Hertford. Catherine and Edward, it seemed, were in love, a match heartily approved of by Catherine's mother, but one which she had no time to promote at court before her death. This left Catherine in a tricky situation. Elizabeth was loath to give her permission for her ladies to marry, particularly a woman of the royal blood, but failing to ask her was treason under the terms of the 1536 Act of Parliament. Yet this is exactly what she did. Sometime in November 1560, at Hartford House on Cannon Row in London, Catherine and Edward were secretly married. The following spring, the 21-year-old Edward was sent abroad to finish his education, and Catherine was left alone, and by this point pregnant. It was a desperate situation for her. Eventually the pregnancy would show and the secret would be out. She either had to find a way to escape court and have the baby secretly, or persuade Elizabeth to forgive her for her secret marriage. In her anguish, she turned two of Elizabeth's closest friends for advice, Lord Robert Dudley and Elizabeth St. Lou. It was a poorly judged move. Dudley, horrified to hear of the betrayal of the Queen and fearful of being considered an accomplice in what might look like a plot against her, immediately went to Elizabeth and told her. The Queen was furious and believed the worst, it not being the first time that grey marriages had been used in an attempt on the throne. Catherine was sent to the Tower, and Edward summoned from Paris. Both were heavily interrogated and a search was made for the priest who had married them, although he was never found. In September, still in the Tower, Catherine gave birth to her son, Edward. The following January, an ecclesiastical commission headed by the Archbishop of Canterbury, unable to find any witness to the marriage, declared that it had never taken place, and hence the child was illegitimate. Catherine and Edward were to be kept separately in the Tower at the Queen's pleasure. Despite this, Edward did somehow manage to visit his wife, probably with the connivance of the lieutenant of the Tower, who felt sorry for the young couple, and Catherine fell pregnant again, further infuriating Elizabeth. Indeed, Elizabeth would now never allow Catherine her freedom again, and from then on she and her husband came no closer than an exchange of letters. Removed from London during the plague and kept under close house arrest, she continued to petition for a pardon, growing worryingly thin and suicidal, but no reprieve came. In London, debates still raged about the succession, and until these were settled, there was no question of Elizabeth setting free a potential heir who had already shown her willingness to disobey her queen. Catherine, the girl who might one day have been queen, died on the 27th of January, 1568, probably from anorexia, and with her died the whole alternative history of England. She was 27 years old. Her husband, Edward, went on to contract further two secret marriages. The Improbable Life of Alice Wildon. Alice Weldon's story is one of the stranger episodes from the home front in the First World War and one which demonstrates the fine line between capture and entrapment. The Wieldon family were undoubtedly revolutionary anti-war socialists, but their sudden rise to fame at the head of what was apparently a fiendish plot worthy of Moriarty himself makes their whole story more unsettling. Alice had been a suffragette before the war, and had passed her firm beliefs on to her children. Her daughter Harriet had also joined the Women's Social and Political Union, and was engaged to a member of the Socialist Labour Party whilst William, her son, was imprisoned as a conscientious objector. Another daughter, Winifred, seemed perhaps less radical, being happily married to Alfred Mason, a lecturer in chemistry in Southampton, and working as a teacher. By December 1916, Alice was also taking in and hiding conscientious objectors on the run from the police and army, and it was in this capacity that she was approached by Alex Gordon. He claimed to be just such a conscientious objector and asked for her help. In truth, he was Francis W. Vivian, a former radical now in the employ of the Secret Service and working to expose anti-war groups. Alice was oblivious to the deception and agreed to hide him overnight, as well as allowing herself to be introduced to his friend, whom he called Comrade Burt, and said was an army deserter and member of the anarcho-syndicalist Industrial Workers of the World organisation. He was, of course, another government agent. Having been accepted into the Wealdon family, Comrade Burt managed to discover that the Wealdons communicated using a chessboard cipher, as they feared their post was being tampered with, which it was. He also noted that the key sentence they used for their code was We will hang Lloyd George from a sour apple tree. Alice was also said often to refer to the Prime Minister in the foulest of terms, calling him a bugger. But if the Wealdons seemed rather quaintly radical the event that follows suggests that they were in fact the most dangerous family in Britain. On the 4th of January, 1917, the Secret Service intercepted a parcel sent from Winifred to her mother, Alice. In it were four small glass vials filled with the exotic and deadly poison, Curare. On the 29th of January, Alice, Harriet and another conscientious objector unfortunately then at Alice's house were all arrested. Winifred was picked up the next day. The charge was conspiracy to assassinate Lloyd George and another War Cabinet member on a Surrey golf course using a poisoned dart. The subsequent trial was somewhat chaotic as the only barrister who could be found to represent the Wealdons was a Persian called Dr Reza who suggested a trial by ordeal. For the prosecution meanwhile the case was led by the Attorney General himself. He suggested that Winifred's husband had obtained the curare from a laboratory where he worked and sent it to Alice with the purpose of coating a dart with it and firing it from an air gun at the Prime Minister. The Wildens claimed the poison was for killing dogs guarding conscientious objector camps and hence facilitating their escape. It took just 20 minutes for the jury to return a guilty verdict on all of them. Alice received 10 years but promptly went on hunger strike and was released after serving just under two. She died only a year later in the post-war influenza epidemic. Alfred and Winifred received seven and five years respectively, but were released at the end of January 1919. But did the middle-aged mother, an owner of a second-hand clothes shop, really plan such an exotic murder? The question has never satisfactorily been answered. Vivian, a.k.a. Alex Gordon, did not appear in court, and so the exact nature of his and his fellow agent's role in the plot remains a mystery. The quick release of the alleged protagonists after the war perhaps suggests that the plot was conveniently engineered to get an undoubtedly radical family out of the way on a pretext. That was The Interesting Bits, written and presented by Justin Pollard, with music by Constance Pollard. The show was produced by T and Stuart Murray.